4, verses 1 through 8. And hear the word of God. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he is something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. As we read now in Romans 4, quotations from Genesis 15 and Psalm 32, we know that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we ask you that you might now illumine that very word so that it might shed greater light upon our walk and our heavenly journey as pilgrims. Assist uh, me now in the preaching and the people in the hearing and let us together rise up in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 4 is a clear point of transition in the book of Romans. Not every Transition in the book is marked by uh, a new chapter. For instance, chapter 3, verse 21 is a clear uh, new section, and yet it isn't a new chapter. But chapter 4 clearly stands on its own. Leading up to chapter 4, we've seen primarily two main points which the Apostle has made. Viewing uh, chapter 1, verse 14 through 17 as our point of departure... He says, I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written that the just shall live by faith. Viewing that as the summary or thesis statement, were the doctrine to be expounded. I've been reading Jonathan Edwards and so have those uh, who have been attending the men's breakfast. There's a doctrine to be expounded every time. That's the doctrine. It's stated there. Viewing that as our point of departure, we have these, these two main points. The first is the gospel is for all. None must be excluded in offering its saving blessings, that is, in preaching the gospel, for it is powerful to save all who believe it. The Jew first, also the Greek, but that is just to say it will go Uh, to the Jews and extend into the whole world, which is exactly what we read in the New Testament. The second point he makes, beginning in verse 18, is uh, of chapter 1, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, is that all need it. The gospel is for all because all need it. Those are the two big points. This way of salvation that Paul is setting forth in the preaching is absolutely necessary for all. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek or a man or a woman, a slave or a free. You need the gospel because all mankind alike and equally stand in a state of sin. And because of sin are under the condemnation and the wrath of God. And it is against the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men that God is revealing his wrath from heaven. Verse 18. 
The gospel is for all and all need it. And thus he goes on in chapter 3 verse 21 to clarify that powerful way of salvation which he was offering to all in his preaching. Namely, verse 28, a great summary of the whole book of Romans. Romans chapter 3 verse 28, the verse which the reformers, especially Luther, latched on to. Therefore, we conclude that a man or any man, any man at all, is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Justified by faith, not by works. In those verses, verses 21 through 31 of chapter 3, which lead up to where we are now in chapter 4, Paul is simply recapturing the emphasis of chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. Again, that justification is by faith alone. And that anyone, anyone at all who has faith will be saved or justified by his faith in Jesus. The gospel then has been stated very clearly. The need for the gospel and then the way of salvation is presented in the gospel thus far. And yet, having stated the matter so clearly, the matter is not settled between Paul and his hearers. And that means between Paul and us. Perhaps it ought to be. Perhaps we ought to be able to stop there. And if only Paul thought that he could. And yet there are... We notice, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, and throughout the rest of Romans, and we've already seen this so far, there are many objections and there are many questions still to be answered. And so Paul will continue to ask them and then to answer them. That is his method in Romans. He was aware, in other words, of the objections that were being made against the gospel, which he has now set forth so clearly. And he needs to deal with them as a good teacher. And we need to realize at the same time that these objections are timeless, and so we need to have them object, uh, the, uh, these objections answered as well. And so, he moves to the next one of these, and this is a question which Christians even today have. Uh, it, it, it will make for fruitful conversation if you ask a Christian this uh, today, especially one of your dispensational friends, if you happen to know any, and that is, is the way of salvation that we find in Jesus Christ something that is new? Or is it something that is old? In other words, what do we find in the Old Testament? What do the scriptures say? That is the Old Testament scriptures. Chapter 4, verse 3. About salvation. How was Abraham saved? How was David saved? Were they saved in a different way than what Paul is now proposing to us in the gospel? It ought to be clear why this question is so uh, important to answer from the standpoint of what the gospel is. If we look at chapter 3, verse 21 through 31, as at least thus far, his, his main and his central statement of what the gospel is. The Apostle Paul has just told us in verse 31, leading very naturally to the question in chapter 4, verse 1, that the gospel does not overturn the law, but it establishes it, confirming what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. And we saw in that sermon the many ways that it does. And so the gospel, or the effect of the gospel, is not to do violence to the law, but to establish it. And the question we have then is what law? Well, obviously, the law of Moses, the law that you find as the center and the fabric of Old Testament religion. And if the effect of the gospel, that is, Jesus coming to the world, living, dying, and being raised for our salvation and for our justification, 
If the effect of the gospel is not to abolish that law, but to establish it, that is the law of the Old Testament, then obviously God is not overturning the religion of the Old Testament. And that has obvious relevance to our understanding of the relation between the two Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is a strong note of continuity that you find. And it is that note of continuity that Paul is stressing, especially in Romans chapter 4. But it isn't as though this is, uh, even this is a new emphasis because it's something he's been stressing already. In fact, ever since chapter 1 verse 2, where he announces the gospel, but he tells us that it's already been announced in the Old Testament. He says he's an apostle separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets and the, uh, the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. God was already announcing this in the Old Testament through the prophets. He says again in uh, chapter 3, verse 21, that the gospel has been witnessed to by the law and the prophets, which is again just a reference to the Old Testament. What were they witnessing to? The prophets. They were witnessing to salvation as would be found in Jesus Christ. They predicted, in other words, the coming of Christ and the salvation he would bring. That is what they looked forward to. That's what they anticipated. And that's what they believed and preached. The essence of Old Covenant or Old Testament religion was a forward-looking anticipation for the coming or to the coming of Christ. That is what they uh, believed and preached. But at the same time, that does not settle the precise question as to how they were saved in the meantime. They were looking forward, they were anticipating, they were predicting the coming of Christ. But the more precise question in view is, how were they saved in the meantime? The prophets like Jeremiah, who looked forward to the coming of a new covenant. Or even these men, Abraham and David, that we see here. How did God save them? How did God justify them? And the answer which Paul gives here, merely by examining the Old Testament scriptures themselves, is that they were saved in exactly the same way as you and me. They were justified by faith alone and not by works of the law. And so in order to show decisively that this way of salvation has always been the same ever since Adam fell into sin, he looks back to these Old Testament scriptures, he examines them and he asks again, what did they say? Verse 3, what does one find there? And he looks to uh, the two figures whom any Jew would agree, even now I think, were the two most prominent figures in the Old Testament, Abraham and David. And he examines their own testimony or the testimony about them concerning this one point alone, and that is, how were they saved? What was their experience of salvation? How did they come to find a blessing and favor with God? How were they justified? Just as an aside, but uh, I think uh, is important to note, keeping verses 27 through 31 in mind, it isn't just the last point that is carried forward into chapter 4 that the gospel establishes the law, but the other two points as well. And so really all three. You remember, boasting is excluded. Number one, verse 27. Number two, 
the distinctions are abolished. And number three, the law is established. Well, we already saw number three, but what about number one? Boasting is excluded. Well, that idea is brought again, uh, forward again and examined in the life of Abraham. Verse two. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And uh, and then uh, the idea of distinctions being abolished, one way of salvation, verses 29 and 30, is also taken a step further. For in those verses, again, chapter 3, verses 29 through 30, we saw this last time, Paul told us that there is one way of salvation for all. But there, especially he is speaking of today, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, it doesn't matter. Salvation is the same for all today. But here he clarifies in chapter 4 that in reality it must be true that is one way of salvation for all at all times. Not just all today, but at all times. The doctrine of God's oneness leading to our confidence that there is only one way of salvation is something that has always been the case, even in the time of the Jews when they lived under the theocracy in Israel. And this has obvious ramifications if you think today, as we read our Old Testaments and try to understand what is going on there. And understand the method of salvation that is being taught there. And what we see is simply this. That for the saints in the Old Testament who lived in Israel, or even before they even entered the land, as in the case of Abraham, that they were saved in exactly the same way as we And so if I were to summarize the contents of chapter 4 more broadly before we look at verses 1 through 8 today, I could summarize it under two main points. The first, as we have seen, is the question as to how the Old Testament saints were saved. In other words, as we examine those scriptures and we examine the lives of men like David and Abraham, we are able to ascertain from the Old Testament scriptures themselves the precise answer to to our question. But beyond that, and looking a little beyond what we're considering today, in many ways, the bigger point being made in chapter 4 of Romans is the faith of Abraham. It looks in a detailed way at the faith of Abraham. In fact, I would put Romans chapter 4 alongside Hebrews chapter 11 as the two great chapters in the New Testament on the subject of saving faith. And not only that, but the relation of Abraham to his true spiritual seed, that is, those who have a faith like his. We'll begin to see that in the next sermon. And so to outline the chapter more or less, under the rubric of faith, his faith faith is defined as the real issue in his life, verses 1 through 5. And then verses 9 through 17, Paul tells us that we are his true children, that is, his true spiritual seed, when we have a faith like his. Having stated those two things, he goes on beginning in verse 18 to the end of the chapter to expound upon the precise nature of Abraham's faith as a case study in faith. And and, and it is in many ways the most detailed, far more detailed even than Hebrews chapter 11, which catalogs the saints. But here is a chapter that looks in detail at one man's faith. If faith was the crucial consideration in the life of Abraham, if it was the thing that determined his fate and his standing with God, then we're obviously left with the question thus far unanswered in the book of Romans, what is faith? What does it look like in actual life? How can we conceive of it as a practical thing? And then, as a corollary to that question, what is faith? 
since faith is what determines whether we are Abraham's true children, how can we be sure that we have a faith like his and thus are his true children? And there is only one way to answer that, and that is by considering what his faith looked like and then comparing our faith to his. And thus we see the value of considering the faith of Abraham, beginning in verse 18. But let us now look in a more detailed way at what is before us. Verses 1 through 8, the beginning of the argument in Romans chapter 4. Looking at Abraham specifically, the question which Paul poses is, what did he find? That is, what he's getting at here is, what did he find from God or before God? What did he find as a human being or a fleshly person who had to live out his life in this world just like you and I have to do before God? How did he find favor with God? Did he find any reason to boast in himself and his works? And if not, which we know he didn't, how did he find favor with God as a fleshly person? And thankfully, this is a question which scripture decisively answers. We don't need to wonder. We don't need to infer. There is an explicit statement or a definitive statement which we find in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 which he quotes here. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Genesis 15 6 is quoted in Romans chapter 4 verse 3. In other words, Paul says, if we want to know whether Abraham found anything to boast about, whether he was justified by faith or by works, all we have to do is consult the scriptures themselves. And there we find uh, a clear statement, which is quoted several times in the New Testament. But it's obviously important, even in our reading of the Old Testament, that when Abraham believed the word of God, God counted it to him as righteousness, which is just to say, in an unmistakable way, That Abraham, our forefather, our spiritual forefather, was justified by faith. There is a clear answer to our question. What he found was justification. How did he find it? He found it by faith, not by works. Well, again, we might be thankful at this point for the clarity that this brings and be tempted to leave matters there. But there are several things that need to be said beginning in verse 4. Actually, that's not true. I'm getting ahead of myself. Several things that need to be said in light of all of the verses that are here that further clarify what Paul is stressing. The first is, if Abraham only found something by faith, not in his flesh, not by his works, but by faith alone, if he was counted righteous by God on account of his faith, we should ask here, since it is obvious relevance to ourselves, what did it mean for him to believe God? Now again, beginning in verse 18, we'll look at that in a detailed way, but we ought to at least have a preliminary answer to our question. What did he believe and what did his belief consist of? Since it was his faith that led to his justification. And the thing that Abraham believed, uh, to put it in the simplest possible terms, was the promise. He He placed his faith in the promise of God. And if you want to have that promise outlined in a detailed way, you'll need to read Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 21, where the promise to Abraham is stated over and over and over again. 
We read it already in Genesis chapter 15. What God was stressing to Abraham when he said, look at the stars of the heavens and understand what I am going to do. I am going to make a multitude from you, Abraham. You are to be the father of many nations. What God was outlining to Abraham was his place in the unfolding covenant that God was establishing with Abraham. He was saying, again, that through Abraham a multitude would be born. He was outlining, in other words, to use another word than covenant, salvation itself. Salvation would come from Abraham. And Abraham believed this old man, though he was, and childless. Now it's clear uh, for us, or, or it ought to be, it's important for us, I mean, to be clear, that Abraham didn't have the full picture. But he had enough. He had the word of God, and he made his faith and his life to rest upon that. He believed God's word to him. Which means he accepted it. He trusted God. He relied on God's word of promise. And he didn't waver as we'll later see. He accepted God's word as it stood. However improbable. And he made his whole life to depend upon it. As uh, the account in Genesis makes clear. And because he did this. Because he believed the word of God. God accepted his person as righteous. The second point has to do with the role of faith in this. Paul uses an interesting formula. I don't want to get bogged down on the details or the technical arguments, but Paul actually says here three times that his faith was credited to him as righteousness. He says it, uh, quoting uh, Genesis 15, 6, that, it w- that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, that his faith was accounted to him as righteousness. He says it again in verse 5. Uh, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And then he says it again, let's see, uh, in verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or only, or, or upon the uh, uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Now the reason that is strange is because we are used to saying that by faith as an instrument, God counts us as righteousness. Or he counts us as righteous, I mean. But here he's saying that God accounted faith itself as righteousness. Well, I don't want to get bogged down here as I say. I just want to notice that that is the formula. Also to notice that in the end it amounts to the same exact thing. Since it is faith that God regards as righteousness, not our works. He justifies the one who has Faith. And to further underscore this contrast, he illustrates, now beginning in verse 4, the principle of works. He says, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. What is he talking about? Well, Paul is imagining uh, a laborer in a employer-employee relationship. The man who labors for his employer and his wages become... Uh, what is owed to him, to use the language of debt. It is not a matter of grace, but of debt. That's just an illustration from common, uh, common life. The employer, you might say, is indebted to the laborer. He owes him wages for his laborers, uh, for his labors, I mean. And if he didn't, if the employer didn't pay 
the employee, then he would be indebted to him. Not only that, he would obviously be wronging the man who works. He would fail to give him his wages, what was his due, what he owed him. Again, a matter of debt and not of grace. And what Paul is implying here is that salvation would work in the same way if our situation with God could be conceived like this. As laborers uh, in God's vineyard, who could expect wages honestly from God? Only it can't because we're never able to make God our debtor by our works. For the obvious and simple reason that we have no works. Now that becomes important in verse 5. But let's just accept that as true. We could never honestly expect from God salvation and eternal life and righteousness as wages which were due to us. Indeed, rather than God being indebted to us, the reality is that we are indebted to him by the innumerable sins we commit, making us debtors, for instance, to his justice. If you think of the prayer which Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts. Sin is seen as a debt that must be paid or else forgiven. Debtors to his justice, or if saved, debtors to his grace and mercy. We just sang that. A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing. God is not our debtor. We are his. We are indebted to him. And so, beginning in verse 5, Paul speaks of the man. If you can imagine him, although it shouldn't be difficult when we begin to speak of a transaction between God and man, the man who has no works and who does no work. What is more, we realize about this man not only that his hands are empty and he has nothing to offer, but his hands are defiled. He has no works. He is ungodly. But to him who does not work, Paul says, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. And do you know the man that Paul is speaking of here? He is speaking of Abraham. The man who had no works, but only believed him who justifies the ungodly. In other words, the man who had no works and who was ungodly is Abraham himself. He had no works, he only has sin. Which makes him again a debtor to God's justice and wrath. And the only thing he can claim and expect from God is damnation as a result of this. But look what else is true of him, Paul says. He believes. And do you see that makes all the difference? It's the thing you'll notice if you read Genesis chapters 12 through 21. He has no works, only sin, but he believes him who justifies the ungodly. He believes the promise. He believes God when he says that he will save sinners even like Abraham. And here we might also ask, does God really do such a thing? Does God actually justify the ungodly? And the answer is, yes, he does. We have God's own testimony in all of scripture beginning in Genesis where God is promising this exact thing. God promising it before Abraham when he promised in Genesis chapter 3 15 that he would bruise the head of the serpent and bring salvation to man through the seed of the woman. It was the same promise he later gave to Abraham and that Abraham believed. Salvation that God would accomplish for sinners by his own sovereign grace and sovereign power through the seed of the woman and later the seed of Abraham. Abraham believed this as did the saints before him and after him. And it was his faith and nothing else that saved him. You see, again, the whole point 
is that God saves and he justifies the ungodly. He saves sinners. First uh, Timothy chapter one, verse 15. It's a faithful say, saying worthy of acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the amazing message of the gospel that Abraham, Abraham himself believed. And when a man like Abraham believes this, when he truly relies upon and accepts this message, when he like Abraham relies fully on God for his righteousness and salvation, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. But not as a wages that is due to him. It is just the opposite. It is the bestowal of grace. Which means unmerited favor. Which brings us to what Paul says about David. He says in verses 8 that this is what you'll find even in David. Or just as. It's the same expression. Just as David or even David found the same thing. And he spoke of the same thing. The blessing of justification. By faith in Psalm 32. The blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Verse 6. And in quoting Psalm 32, David speaks of the non-imputation of sin. That God does not count our sins or he does not hold them against us. He is speaking of remission. He is speaking of forgiveness. The fact that God pardons and is merciful. Remember that David had committed alarming sin. The double sin of murder and adultery. And because of this, who could seriously entertain the notion that, that David found the blessing or he found favor with God by his works? A study of the life of David from the Old Testament itself rules it out. In some sense, it can seriously be said, whoever sinned like David, whoever sinned against grace like David, Whoever sinned against God's favor. And yet, in the midst of his sin, and because he exercised faith and repentance, he came to find a blessing from God. Not of works, but of grace. It was the blessing he found of forgiveness. Of total remission that God himself regarded his sin no more. In other words, God did not impute the guilt of David's sin to David, though David committed the sin. He didn't hold it against him. Now, if we were to ask how that was possible, we already know the answer. We've considered it in Romans chapter 3. The answer is he counted it against Jesus Christ on the cross. Sin was not imputed to David, though he committed it, or the guilt of sin, because it was imputed to Jesus Christ. And that is how God did not count it against David. And yet, God remained just and righteous in doing so. But for now, if we look just at what David is saying here, David is considering the blessing itself. And thus, how blessed the man is who enjoys it. Oh, to think, he says, that God would not count my transgressions, though I committed them and I cannot take them back. Oh, that he wouldn't hold them against me and that he would wipe the ledger clean, canceling the debt, remembering my sins no more. And here is the amazing thing, David says. He has. My lawless deeds are forgiven. My sins are covered. The Lord has not imputed my sin. Oh, what blessing. 
And this, you see, is the proof of what Paul has said in verse 5. Again, to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Paul is speaking of the man who has no works, only sin, the ungodly man. He's speaking of Abraham, but also David. And yet, what we discover in the Old Testament scriptures is that both men were blessed. Both were highly favored. Both were justified. How did they come by it if not by their works? And the answer is, by faith. It was by faith that God counted them righteous and regarded their sins no more. Now it is true that David only speaks of one side of this. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Again, the non-imputation of sin. He spoke that is only a forgiveness But even to speak like that is to include the other side. To say God doesn't regard our sins is not to say that God regards us as neutral. No, it obviously includes and involves the other side, which we see in the life of Abraham. That he regards us as righteous. And if this was true of Abraham, we can be sure it was true of David as well. Involved in the blessing of non-imputation of sin, that is forgiveness, was at the same time the imputation of righteousness. And so Paul simply carries the thought through when he says that real blessing is only found when God imputes righteousness apart from works. Not simply that he doesn't impute our sins, but that at the same time having done that, he imputes righteousness Apart from works, verse 6, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Not only is the ledger wiped clean and the debt is forgiven, but in its place is credited the righteousness of the God-man, Jesus Christ himself. How is it found? Only by faith. And so you see a confirmation of the truth which he stated in verse 5. Namely, that God justifies the ungodly. He accounts our persons as righteous when we believe, but we are not actually righteous. We are still in a state of sin like David and Abraham, which is the whole point here. That is exactly how justification works. It is as we are ungodly, unrighteous and unclean, that God regards us as righteous the moment we believe. We are justified, again, by faith alone, apart from works. We are full of sin. We are wretched sinners who deserve nothing but damnation and wrath. And yet, Abraham says, and David says, in that state, the blessing finds us. The blessing of forgiveness. The blessing of reconciliation. The blessing of an imputation of righteousness. It flows to us through the blood of Jesus. The moment we place our trust in that blood for our salvation. And so how do we find it or how does it find us? By faith alone. We are justified as sinners. We are rescued and redeemed by the blood and obedience of Jesus Christ and by nothing else. Amazing to think. God justifies the ungodly. And yet that is what he is calling us to believe. Not that he justifies the righteous, but that he justifies the unrighteous. And believing that, like Abraham And like David, we are justified. One simple act of believing God's word, even as Abraham himself did in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, 
justifies the sinner once and for all. It wipes the slate clean. God no more regards our sin, but it does more. Positively, it places to our account the righteousness of Jesus Christ again. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. That is what it means for God to justify the ungodly. And this is the way that Abraham and David were saved. And it is, Paul says, the only way that any man has ever been saved. You will never read of a single man in history or in biblical history that has ever been saved in any other way. Because all alike are under sin. All alike are under condemnation. Even Abraham, even David, and even you. And thus no one can be saved by his works. No one can present his works to God and claim that God owes him as is due eternal life. We are saved solely by faith in Jesus Christ who is our righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed, and by whom alone we, like David and Abraham, are blessed. Amen, and all praise, honor, and glory to the Lamb who was slain. And let us now come to the table uh, to receive the Lord's Supper.